Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Come on up close. You want to sit over here, or should we just like sit on the edge of the stage? No, let's not do that. You want to sit on the edge? I'll sit on the edge with you. Test. This, yeah, this is good. I feel like Lou Rawls. You'll never find. Thank you. Oh, Ooh, but now the sun's like even closer. All right. Can you make an introduction? Yes. So thank you for joining us at the Baltimore Book Festival at the Enoch Pratt Free Library Children's Stage. I'm Tracy Diamond, and we're pleased to have you here. We will have a very intimate conversation. We're also recording this for the Children's Book Podcast, so we'll be passing around the mic for questions. The Book Festival is such a special event for the entire city and for Live from the Baltimore Book Festival on a beautiful day in the Inner Harbor, this is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 470, and I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today I'm joined by Tony Medina, the author of I Am Alfonso Jones, an exceptional young adult novel from Lee and Lowe Books, based around the Black Lives Matter movement and centering on an undeniable story of youth, of history, of education, and of police violence. It's a community coming together. It's an exceptional work. And this conversation is blessed throughout, not only by Tony's presence, but also what he brings to speaking the words to life. Before we get into it, thank you to our sponsors, Gallery Nucleus and Storyteller Academy, the Highlights Foundation, and Viz Media for helping make today's episode possible. Thank you also to the support of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, who made this conversation happen. And now please welcome my guest, Tony Medina, the author of I Am Alfonso Jones. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Matthew Winner. I'm the host of the Children's Book Podcast. Wait, what's your last name again? Winner. Whoa. Winner. Winner. Chicken dinner. Um, Medina, Medina, I got nothing. <laughs> but, uh, ah, no, let's not. Uh, I want to welcome all of you here. You're welcome to come in, get close. Uh, we're talking about an intimate book. Love to have you close. Love to have you chat with us. Uh, Tony, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for writing this gorgeous graphic novel. I am Alfonso Jones. Beautiful book. I am Alfonso Jones. This is, um, this is a powerful book. This is a heavy book. Wanna it's tell... heavy. It's layered. It's crazy. You want to tell everyone a little book talk? What it, what, how you're sharing it with well, kids? Well, um... This deals with police brutality, and it's about a 16-year-old kid 
Well, he just turned 16, actually. Um, from the Bronx in Harlem, named Alfonso Jones. He's a black Puerto Rican kid who is in a gifted class for talented students. He goes to the Henry Dumas School of the Arts in Harlem. And Henry Dumas was this um, great poet and fiction writer of the black arts era, you know, and he was killed at the age of 33 in 1968 at the 135th Street train station in Harlem, the two and the three line. And just to know a little bit about Henry Dumas, one of his um, best friends and colleagues was Dr. Eugene B. Redmond, who teaches in um, Illinois. Who, he retired from St. Louis. And um, he was responsible for, along with Toni Morrison, of getting his works posthumously published. And he has a legendary status among black writers. And I wanted him to factor into this story. But Alfonso Jones goes to the school, and one day, um, he wants to buy a suit, his first suit, to visit, um, to greet his father upon his release from prison. His father was a cab driver who was accused of rape and murder. And um, he was exonerated on DNA 15 years later. That's the extent of, a white of woman. Alfonso's life. Yeah. And so he's excited about that. He's been saving up money on his part-time job as a, as a bike messenger. Um, his after-school job, and he's on his way to buy his first suit with his best friend and his secret crush, Donetta Jimenez, and they go off, and they leave the safe confines of his Harlem hood, and they venture out into mid-Manhattan into a department store called Marksman's, and in that process, um, the hanger he's holding up, you know, the jacket hanger um, he's holding up is mistaken for a gun, and a police officer who's um, moonlighting as a security guard, shoots and kills him, and he's yanked out of his life and ends up on this gross train in Harlem. I'll leave it at that right now. That's beautiful. Um, is this your first graphic novel? It's my first graphic novel, and I had to teach myself how uh, to write a graphic right. novel. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. The book has, it's broken into a number of chapters, maybe like 40, 50 chapters. A lot. Well, it's yeah, the chapter's almost chapters. like scenes in Exactly, a like yeah. scenes. Um, and I found it to be uh, really dense. It was really, I wanted to sit with Alfonso. I wanted to stay there with him. I wanted to make sure that I was present every moment because you have, there's so much to take in in this story. Well, you know, when, you know, when I started cooking for myself, you know, leaving, you, you leave home, you get your own apartment and you start cooking. You know how you just put every seasoning in, in, in the cupboard, into the, into the food, into the whatever, the, the, the boiling pot. Stew, into the stew, yeah. I, I used that whole aesthetic into this book. I put everything in there but the kitchen sink. No, including the kitchen sink. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's so much in here, too, that I can tell how much words matter and voice matters. And I think it's beautiful that you've preserved those voices. I've marked all over my book. Um, but I wonder for you, before we get into this, um, where this story, where did you feel it on your heart? At what point did you feel on your heart to tell... Alfonso's story, to tell it this way? Were you thinking of your readers? Were you thinking of um, the Black Lives Matter movement going on outside? Were you thinking of uh, just these schools you're visiting? Like, where did this come from from you? Well, I remember 
when I um, first moved to Harlem from the Bronx, um, and this was around the Rodney King incident that took place. So I remember distinctly the Rodney King incident. And you know about Rodney King, who was brutalized by the police. And it was caught on videotape. This was way before social media and, and cell phones and stuff like that. And it was caught on videotape by someone in a building right across from where it was happening on the side of the road. And um, the police still got exonerated from that brutality. And Fast forward, fast forward, and also in, 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 even before that, I think, there was the Anthony Baez incident in, um, in the Bronx. And Anthony Baez, who factors in, in the book on the, on the ghost train, he was a, a security guard, and in front of his house, he was playing some, you know, football. You know, how you play catch with his brother. And it just so happened that there was a police car, you know, not too far away. And the football hit the car, and the cops, you know, got mad, gave him a warning, don't let it happen again. And then it subsequently happened again. And so, uh, you know, an incident ensued in which he was choked to death, defending his brother. And that became the inspiration for Spike Lee's character, Radio Rahim, in Do the Right Thing. So then I, I remember distinctly, um, when the Amadou Diallo incident took place in the Bronx. Amadou Diallo, who plays a guide, who plays um, Alfonso Jones's guide in the ghost, in the spirit world, he was, he went out to get something late at night, past 12, 12 midnight, he went out to get some food. Upon returning back to his building in the Bronx, and I visited that, that, that doorway, that vestibule. Um, so he was coming home, and all of a sudden, as he's putting, trying to get the keys you know, into the door, four um, cops out of uniform. They were just like in t-shirts and jeans or whatever. These white police officers, it's dark, it's nighttime. They just, out of nowhere, they just bum-rushed him and they had their weapons drawn. And just as I am close to Matthew, they shot at him 41 times, 19 of which hit him all over his body. And so they try to say that they thought that his wallet was a gun, but he wasn't trying to get his wallet. He was trying to get his keys and get into the door because he saw these people running at him. So that was a big thing, and we had a huge protest about that in New York. So all those things are combining with the rash of incidents that we've been having in the last five or so years, particularly with Trayvon Martin and Michael yes. Brown and all these other kids. To have, um, as a white author, coming from a background that I come from, not having this experience, reading, in the year that, that Alfonso Jones came out, just last year, to be reading this and to see the significance the hanger takes, the mistake, the, the mistaken assumption about the hanger, to read The Hate You Give and read it about a, 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 a comb, to read uh, Ghost Boys by Joel Parker Rhodes and to have a, yeah, a toy. There's so much the stuff there that there's this... This item, this thing that's mistaken, but um, and it's always something. It's so, it's yeah, the 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 notion that there's always suspicion there that we're not even starting by assessing the situation. We're starting at there must be something threatening and, and in and his an hand and an irrational fear. Yeah, you know the way that that toward the end and you know that harkens back to to slavery and Jim Crow. You know the way the way that you take 
we're going to go all over in this book. I'm going to try not to spoil it for you. But the way, the way we get after Alfonso's funeral, after they're saying that uh, video has come out, and we think that actually maybe he was trying to shoplift or maybe this was going on, all that when they, when they try to, when the media is trying to well, say... You know that incident with the hangar? It actually began as um, a young white uh, woman in the store sees this white gentleman holding up a BB gun that he was like interested in purchasing. She freaked out thinking it was a real gun. So she goes to the, to the um, security guard who's also a police officer and says, there's a guy over there, you know, waving a gun around. And so when he goes over there, he doesn't see the white guy with the BB gun. He sees Alfonso with the hanger. And then, you know, the artwork comes in and, and the artist is brilliant in the fact that, you know, you know what wire hangers symbolize in our culture particularly when we're dealing with, you know, the Supreme Court and the threat of Roe v. Wade and stuff like that. So it's almost like, you know, abortion in a sense that takes place. Like, I mean, you bring that back to birth too with, with how Alfonso was brought into life, the trauma that he, he was born into, the, uh, his dad falsely accused, ripped away, his, his mom uh, being busted in on, the cops... Knocking over candles, burning down the apartment. Just so, so you see, like, with the father and the imprisonment and stuff like that and being exonerated with DNA, so you get the whole prison industrial complex layered into the narrative. But it, it's told in a natural way that this is, like, our lives, like, with the religious spirituality of Santaria, which comes from the Yoruba traditions in Nigeria. You know, everything is just, this, this is a natural part of the culture and the fabric, along with you know, the racism and police brutality that comes along with that. But I wanted to create a character in Alfonso Jones. You know, when, when Trayvon Martin was killed, and also Michael Brown, and how in the media, the police, it's a combination of the media and the police, where they try to demonize the young black person, and the young black boy is not allowed to be a boy, he has to be a man, because in the trial, they were referring to Trayvon as a man, and even a jurist, one of the jurors was referring to um, George Zimmerman, who was like 27 years old, about 200 and something pounds, as Georgie, the name that his mother called him. So he's infantilized, but the kid, the black boy, is turned into a man, not allowed to be a child. So I wanted a child in this book that was kind of like, not perfect, not squeaky clean, but you couldn't really touch him. He excelled in every aspect of his life, especially coming from the precarious situation he did when he was born, which I, won't, I don't want to give that too much away, but you know yeah. how he was born. I mean, taken out of his life while studying Hamlet, while getting ready to audition for Hip Hop Hamlet. Like, there's this, you've, you've poured on so much uh, connection there to, to other great works, but also that significance of his life. And the irony is that... Um, Alfonso wants to be Hamlet, right? Hamlet is the prince. But who's the ghost in the play? It's the father, King Hamlet. He ends up being King Hamlet because his rival, Punky, um, who's, who's a better actor and a, and a better rapper, beats him out for the role of Hamlet. So by fault, he gets the King Hamlet part. So he kind of gets ghosted, which is, there's a lot of foreshadowing that takes place um, and symbolism. Was this always a graphic novel for you when you were picturing this? How this was going to, how this, how Alfonso's story was going to be told? Were you already thinking of the graphic yeah, yeah. novel it format? Was, well, because I think you know my um, two books, which is an imprint of Lee and Lowe, 
they were really interested in doing something. And I've been chomping at the bit to do a graphic novel. So it was kind of like the right time, the right place. And they wanted to do something about police brutality. And they seen all of my Facebook posts and my tweets and stuff. And I was going crazy on the time. They said, well, you know, Tony would be the perfect person to do this, <laughs> do this story. And once they, they said, would you like to do this? I said, hell yeah. So I jumped on the opportunity. Um, and, you know, writing for comics or writing um, graphic novels was a big mystery to me. I was like, well, how do they get the words in the bubbles and stuff, like the balloons and stuff? Right? So I, I literally had to teach myself. And there's no, you can't go get a book and, and learn how to do it. There's no, like, set way. Like, like, you know, when you write a play, there's a certain format. When you do a screenplay, it's a similar certain format. When you write a novel, a book of poetry, but for writing graphics and comics, it's just... It's not a certain format, it's a way of communicating with the artist. That you have to literally communicate. And there's certain, there's certain language that you use, like filmic or screenplay language that you use um, to set up the scenes and all that stuff that, that's universal. But it's really like Neil Gaiman talked about how it's a letter between me and the artist. You know? Right. I mean, the, to be able to direct the art, I mean, when you're making picture books, you leave room for the artist. When you're making graphic novels, you have to communicate that vision yeah. to the artist to make sure you're both telling the same story. Well, you, you know, there's two stories being told. There's the, the textual story, right, what, what I write, and then there's the visual story. And it's almost like a dance that we'll do, like, you know, I don't step on your toes, you don't step on my toes, but we're doing a dance as artist and writer, you know what I mean? Unless you're the writer and the illustrator. So were, you know to do. Were, your, were your illustrators, Stacey Robinson, John Jennings, were they, were they on from the beginning? Do, well, do you... this is what happened. In the beginning, right, I said, well, I want a woman of color to be the illustrator for gender balance, right? Gender equality. And um, so we, they, they, got, they got this young woman. I think, I'm not, I'm not sure, she may have been an Asian sister. I finished the manuscript on time. I literally finished it in like about three, four months. And once she got the manuscript after, you know, we... Um, went back and forth a couple of rounds of drafts to tighten it up. Um, she sat on the manuscript for six months. And after six months, she said, well, I don't think I could do this. It sounds too personal, which we read to mean that, you know, it's too black, too strong, right? So, um, so we said, so um, Stacy Whitman, who's my editor, and she's the publisher of two books, the imprint two books. She said, well, let me, let, let's look for somebody else. So she happened to know about John Jennings, who was teaching at SUNY Albany at the time. And Stacy Robinson was one of his students. And it just so happens that in my travails as an artist and stuff, he came out of all the way from like uh, Memphis, Tennessee or whatever. We knew of each other and we had mutual friends in common. And so I went on his website and I saw, wow, his politics are right on target, on point. And so she broached it to him. He talked to Stacy, and they said, hey, this is in our wheelhouse. We've been wanting to do, you know, political stuff, you know, really important work that deals with race and class and all these issues. And they jumped on it, and it was just like, it was meant to be, you know what I mean? It was like the right people on the right project. That, that there, that's like publishing magic. To know, too, going into this, uh, that, you, that you're balancing 25 characters some 
some from the news, some from, um, from fiction, but they're there and they all have to, you have to be able to see them all and believe them all. They all have to fit the same narrative, but also be expanding the narrative as, they, as you continue the story. It's beautifully done. They did a wonderful job. You did a wonderful job there too. What you laid down for them to pick up. Well, um, I had descriptions of the characters first off the bat. I don't think um, Stacy Robinson, he, was, he did the, so Stacy Robinson was brought in, right? He did all the penciling. They called them thumbnail sketches first. And the thumbnails are just real rough sketches kind of place. To pace everything. Yeah, yeah. to pace, like storyboarding. And you do that, and then once he gets to go ahead by the person who, who navigates the production, which is also was our editor, so she was doing everything, right? So um, then he could go on and draw. You know, he complained a lot because I, I wrote a lot. You know, I was trying to get a lot of ideas in there. It's like, I need room to write. And we were limited in, as to our pages. And, and that changed, of course, along the lines. We had to expand certain scenes and things like that. So we got more pages. Because usually when you see, like, these graphic novels and these, uh, especially the middle grade novels, they're like 200 and something pages, you know? The artist has like room to really stretch out. So we had to kind of get that, and, and I think um, they acquiesced for that. But he did all the penciling. Jennings comes in and does the inking. But it got, because they're so busy themselves, they were, ch they were changing universities where they teach and locations, and um, Jennings just put out the book. There was an adaptation of Octavia Butler's um, Kindred. Yeah. So he was wiped out of that. He, I mean, he literally, like, his, his shoulder went out in the middle of that. Because he never did a book that big. And this was the first book that Stacy Robinson did by himself. Wow. So, um, you know, it was, it, they did the whole, they did the, the art and everything in 13 months. Which is uncalled for. Like, un, un, it's unreal, unprecedented. Unprecedented. It's, it's an exceptional book. There's so much in here, too. As I said, I wanted to share. Um, I love some of the language here that you're giving your readers, uh, some of the language that resonates throughout. I love here uh, Angel shares. Uh, there's a, we're, on the, we're on the train here. There's all these ghosts of the train, and, and, and it's told to Alfonso. Do you learn your own story as, you, as you're on this train? You learn your story by learning about the stories of others. And uh, he shares, there's a reason why you hear protesters chant, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. Who do you think puts it in their ears? The living do as the dead tell them. That is the cycle. There are ancestors all around. And you've pulled so in. You bring the whole, the notion of like ancestors and spirits and the continuum. And it also charges Alfonso with what he needs to do because he was fully thriving in his life at that time. I wrote a, a biography for children about Langston Hughes called Love to Langston, right? And when Langston was 16, that was me. And when Langston was 16 years, I know you from somewhere. <laughs> and when Langston Hughes was 16 years old, now, you know, Langston had a kind of rough childhood, right? His father left when he was like one. And because of racism, it drove him out of the country. And then he treated people crappy when he was, a, he made it big in the mining industry in um, Mexico. And Langston went to see him at the age of 16 and it really ruined his view of him. His mother never talked bad about the father. So he had this big view of his father. When he saw him and how he was treating his workers, it just messed him up. Um, so, but Langston Hughes, when he was 16, 
he was living by himself on his own. He was occupying in an attic room in his friend's house. In, I think it was Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. And he was totally thriving. Um, he, he ran track. He did journalism. He wrote poetry. He did everything. And I took that notion and put that into the Alfonso character, where Alfonso, he's a bicycle messenger. He makes him, making money to raise money to buy his first suit for his father's release from prison. He's in a band, he plays the trumpet. He's into hip hop and jazz. Um, he's in, 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 in a school play. And he's, in, he's among all these gifted kids where they talk about race and class and all these deep issues and stuff. But they also have a sense of humor. So there's a lot of levity in the, in the story. They, um, I'm, I'm watching our time, we're running out of time fast. But another scene that I thought was beautiful that I'd love to ask you to read if you don't mind is the eulogy that the grandfather gives him at the Apollo. It's gorgeous. You know, that was a longer piece. I had to cut it down. It, it's, it's exceptional. Can I hand it over to you? But can I, can I, um... I got it marked. Can I read something else, too? Please, please do. Read it all. We got time, right? Well, let me tell you something. Um, after a certain age, you know what I mean? Please. I just got to get something. You got to, like... You gotta Ladies and gentlemen of the podcast, Tony is uh, bringing out his glasses. Oh, the whole eulogy? So, um, Alfonso is um, being escorted, like his guide is Amadou Diallo in the, in the spirit realm. So he's going back in time and also in the present, and he's also able to go to his own funeral. His funeral takes place at the Apollo Theater, right? That's how big the incident is. So, um, do you want me to start right here? Yeah, I think that'd be great. Okay, so there's a lot of protesting that's taking place outside. And so this is Alfonso uh, narrating. And when you read a graphic novel comic, the narration is usually in boxes instead of like the, bub the, the balloons. That's my grandfather. I can't believe he's at my funeral giving my eulogy. And his grandfather is... Um, a reverend that's in the radical liberation theology tradition. So he's also an activist in Harlem and has his own church, right? That's my grandfather. I can't believe he's at my funeral giving my eulogy. I always wanted to go to the Apollo, but not like this. And then this is the grandfather. Our soul child wants to speak, yet injurious injustice disturbs his sleep. Each hellish hole in his brown flesh, ancestral eyes setting us to a test, dead for no ill will, but for his skin. How will we adjudge such sin? People watched my funeral on the Apollo Theater marquee, shouted and nodded like it was church. In America, if you are black, you can run on a football field, a baseball field, a track field, and a basketball court. But God forbid you should ever run from the police. Your blood will run from your flesh and your breath will run out of time. When an unarmed citizen, a child, is shot and killed in a rush to judgment, none of us 
are safe. Thank you. I, there was so much that I thought, I thought that it was coming from that place. There were so many words you give us here that I, I could hear you intoning them. I could hear, I could hear it. Thank you for that gift. So, you know, I, you know, I'm a poet, so I wanted to put some poetry in there. And uh, that's a way of doing it with the father, uh, the grandfather. And, and mind you, because what happened to Alfonso, and Alfonso, what happened to the father happened when the mother was about to give birth, right? And these, this happens all in the first 25 pages, so I'm not really revealing too much. Um, so he's born out of that situation. She wants to take him out of the Bronx and move him to Harlem so that he can have a male role model in his life, you know? And there's a scene in which um, his grandfather has to give him the talk, right? So Alfonso, of course, thinks it's about the birds and the bees, right? So he's like embarrassed, like, oh no. Of course, the talk in this instance is the other talk that you have to give to black children, which has to do not with the birds and the bees and, and sex and stuff, but has to do with how to navigate in the world where, you know, your life could be in danger by those who are paid to protect you, you know. Connecting with that, you, we, we, we go back and forth between Alfonso's time in school, his, his present and uh, his time flashing back. And we were back with Mr. O in his school and uh, Mr. O says, uh, what does it mean to be invisible in society, that is? It's not a rhetorical question. It's an actual question. And Alfonso says, well, I guess it's like Ralph Ellison. Oh, so you read Invisible Man. Not exactly. I heard of him through my father and rode to find his statue on Riverside Drive. My father wrote me about Invisible Man and said he would send it to me when he finishes it for the fifth time. He goes on to say, Invisibility to me is how you could be invisible in society, yet stick out. Or how the homeless are everywhere in the subway, in street corners, sleeping on metal grates outside buildings, even on church stoops. We go on with all of these individuals in, in class having this and conversation. The, and, the, and the students are, you know, they're going back and forth and riffing and stuff and talking about these issues. They're lighting up. They're seeing it. They're making that connection, that thing. That and they have a very woke uh, teacher. Yes. <laughs> You know, he's an Asian, um, young Asian radical type of teacher and stuff who lets them engage in these critical thinking um, discussions and stuff, you know? I think about your readers there. I think about how the first time I read this, the story was, uh, at that point, all the, all the lines were connecting in this story. The future, the past, everything was connecting. And I, I just think about what that means for that reader. So let me ask you this. When you wrote this story, when you wrote Alfonso's story... Did you draft the entire story? Did he tell his story to you as you were writing it? How, how much of a plan did you have going into this? Well, the good thing is that um, my editor made me write a proposal with the plot laid out and stuff. So it was the plot points that I laid down, which was a kind of complicated plot, <laughs> you know? I'm like, how am I going to pull this off? Um, well, that's how I basically kind of um, figured out how to write it, you know? from plot point to plot point, and then the hard part is just figuring out how many panels per page and how long a scene is going to be and things of that nature. You're right and into a page turn, too. 
graphic novels, you write to page turns. It's really powerful. Yeah, and thing. then um, well, yeah, and then you when you write the um, script, you literally have to say page one, and then underneath is like panel page one, panel one, and you describe everything that happens there, um, and then it's like the voiceover is the one who's narrating, which is Alfonso for the most part, and then the dialogue you put the name of the person who's speaking and, and this and that, but you set up the scene that. If it's an exterior shot, you set up the outside, and then if you want to sh cut to inside the classroom or the home or whatever, you know. So it's it's even in your language there. It's so much about filmmaking. But you also gotta the like worry about yeah. yes, like filmmaking, right? and it's like making a movie basically. And you gotta um, try to not write so much as to things that the, the the artist and the art can take over and show. So you got to kind of do that balancing act in the writing. I have one more, one more thing that I want to ask you a, a, a favor, if you don't mind. But also you because you're seeing some Lou Rawls. Oh well, there you go. Uh, but also just for the care that you give to Alfonso throughout this story, you take care of him, and through there you take care of your readers. Um, I thought one of the most beautiful things you wrote in this whole thing was when Alfonso's mom has a chance to talk. Do you mind? Can I ask you to read one more? Yeah, that would be great. Um, this is the thing, right? Um, we get hit with the 24-hour loop when somebody is killed, and, it's, and they become a hashtag, a statistic, a clip that you see on the news, and that's it. You don't see the ripple effects of how the family is, is dealing with that major loss, especially the mother, right? So, you know, um, what page? You want to show it to me? Yeah. So this is the mother. And you know how they're being constantly harassed by the media and reporters and, 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 and such. Look at that beautiful baby over there. <laughs> okay, this is chapter 35. It's called Born to Trauma. Because Alfonso was literally born in a... In a traumatic way he was my miracle boy the one who almost didn't make it every time he left the house I prayed you don't know what a mother goes through dreamt I ripped that cop's eyes out screamed and swung and scratched at his face and woke in a sweat screaming what have you done? What have you done? What have you done to my beautiful baby boy? I'm not going to let you turn my son's death into a reality show episode. Every few weeks, every so many months, another black body at the hands of white police, black police, any old police. Here you come again, trying to parade us around TV to cry on cue cry out for a justice we never get we're not going to let you make a circus of our pain our black misery is not for your white amusement why do you think i fought to get my son into henry dumas because it was a school that was created from grassroots organizing and did not depend upon a curriculum that excluded his reality had that damn security guard Cop Officer Whitson went to a school whose books reflected a broader reality than his narrow lily white mind, had movies, TV, whatever reflected that. 
Maybe he would have seen my son as a teenager, as a person, as a citizen, as an American, as a human, and not something to be so easily, so rapidly, so wistfully disposed of. His girlfriend said he shot my baby like a deer, like a deer. And all he was doing was buying his first suit. All he was doing was trying on a damn suit. I guess you got that. I guess you got what you wanted. You did real good. It's a beautiful book, Dr. Medina. Is there anything else about Alfonso Jones before we all go out into the world, before we carry this story with us? Is there anything else about this story that you want to make sure people know? I'm going to turn to you for questions as well. Is there anything else that you wanted to, t to share, though? Yeah, I mean, I think that last, um, kind of like that last soliloquy that, is, that the mother talks about, that's one of our major problems is that you know, and I have these discussions with my students. I teach at Howard University. And, and I, that's what this, you know, Baltimore Book Festival is about. It's about showing and reflecting all cultures, all people in the literature, right? So if you don't see yourself in the books, if you don't see yourself in the curriculum, you know, um, outside of just being, you know, relegated to uh, a revisionist history, if you don't see yourself on the little and the big screen, reflected as, you know, and let me tell you something, racism affects people of color wholeheartedly, you know, that's, that's a given, right? But it really does a number on, on white folks, you know? It gives them a, a warped sense of reality. And so it keeps them from really seeing people's true humanity. And so they buy into to the stereotypes and they buy into uh, these ridiculous myths of white supremacy and stuff like that, and they don't see the humanity. So it's easier to harm someone, in a sense. So I think that's the most important part. The most important part, if you really look at the story, is that this was a total person at the height of his young life, and he was totally destroyed in an instant by someone's ignorance, someone's stupidity, and their fear, their lack of judgment in an instant because they just saw this person, you know, uh, as a stereotype or whatever. I don't, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't even know. But they didn't see him as a human being. They didn't see him as a boy. Um, talk about what's happening um, with the, the, the Supreme Court hearings. Imagine if Kavanaugh was Anita Hill up there, you know, uh, Olani Grenier up there getting all emotional and screaming and all. They would have said, oh, get the, <laughs> get the paramedics, bring in the straight jackets, let's, you know, yank her out of there. So there's all these double standards that take place in our society, and it's really dangerous. And racism is doing a big job on white people, you know, in a certain extent because they can't see uh, the forest for the trees. So they can have somebody like Trump come in and um, who's a, who, who most of these white folks that voted for him don't have any interest in common with Donald Trump except for being white.
but he's in a different class, and he's uh, functioning for a different class. He's not functioning for those people in West Virginia he went to lie to last night. Um, so it's easy to let racism um, anesthetize you into a, 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 a non-reality, right? A surreality where you don't really see who's really, you know, um, causing you the problems that you have economically and socially. And it's not that person that doesn't look like you, you know, uh, you know genetically or whatever, but um, you have more in common with that, that person, class-wise or so on. But I want to leave on a, a levity, a little levity. Oh, so we, we could just talk for like two and a half more hours if you're not going anywhere. So, so when they find out, when, when the class finds out that they're going to, they were supposed to do the traditional Hamlet, right? The Shakespearean version of Hamlet. But um, their teacher, um, their drama teacher, got into um, an accident on the runway of a plane, right? At LaGuardia. And so she's out for the rest of the school year. So they get the young uh, Mr. O uh, to be their drama teacher, right? He's their social studies teacher. So he's going to do the drama. So he says, well, you know, we're going to take, take Hamlet, and we're going to flip it and do the hip-hop version of Hamlet, right? So they spill out into the hallway at the end of the class, and Punky and Alfonso are just riffing, like freestyle. They're like rivals, you know? So, um, but they're friendly rivals, I guess. And this is them going back and forth. And this is the, the scene right there. This is your page. To be or not to hip hop, to be or not to hip hop, are you noble? Will I scold you if, I, if you took my life and caused strife? What is a life? What is a lie? When your dis-ease causes another to die, blow, blow, making them toast, making them ghost, making them host their own to be or not. And then finally, I want to read, um, this is the scene where um, Alfonso goes to um, the Midtown Manhattan store, Marksman's, with uh, Donetta, and the school is closed down because of the weather, right? And so this is them too. And they're literally improvising their lines for the, for the play. And Alfonso in this instance is being Hamlet, even though he's going to be King Hamlet. And um, Donetta is uh, Ophelia. Ophelia. Oh, and you know that, raising if you read Hamlet or you, you saw Hamlet, you know about Hamlet. You know the part where she basically, you know, get ye to a nunnery, that type of scene, where, you know, she's like losing her mind because, because your boy Hamlet is messing with her? This is kind of that scene. Ophelia, I feel you, but you don't want to mess with me. My heart is lazy. My head is crazy for what my moms did to my pops. I don't know why you tripping, ham hock. You not the only one my heart clocks. It's not that, baby love. I just don't want you to get burnt by the fire of my desire. You need to join a choir, love. Hambone, hambone, have you heard? I'm hip to your lame games and trifling ways. So if you can't be my love host, you best be like your pops, ghost. 
Questions for Dr. Tony Medina. Questions? Anybody got a question? I won't stand, but I'll ask. Okay. Um, I've known Tony Medina for a number of years, and I've been able to watch him uh, blossom as a scholar, a critic, a poet. But I have a question in terms of connecting. I've not yet read Alfonso Jones. Um, I Boo hiss! Right, for right now. Because I see Alfonso Jones on the streets of Baltimore every day and every night on my social media, etc. It's hard. So I guess I even have, I have several questions I could ask. But, so I could sit here and ask questions all day long. But my question is, how are you connecting with the young people? I see you through social media, so I'm asking an unfair question. But in terms of what kind of groups, organizations, you're doing you know, readings like this, but what types of, like we have a group, uh, and I'm just gonna throw their name out there, uh, Pro Project Numa, I think it's called. They're, it, it, you know, where they're young males, you know, mothers of murdered children. How are you, you know, helping to heal the community through this book? What organizations are you? Well, you know, the book just came out last October. Sure. I think it's on its fourth or fifth printing by now. It's wild. And it doesn't have like the big heavy duty commercial um, distribution. It's mainly distributed through like the um, educational market. So um, just going into classrooms right now and getting, you know, I did a workshop up in the Washington Heights area with kids where I got them to write their own little uh, comics and stuff like that off of two visits, um, but I'm not sure, but I've been giving a lot of Skype interviews and been invited to certain places to talk about the book, because there's people that can't bring me in, of course, because they'll be in Cleveland or, you know, out of, the, you know, out of the, my range, and I'm teaching and stuff, so I, and I see them tweet about the book and get excited about it, and then I go on there and say, hey, let's instant message one another, and we could set up, I could do FaceTime or Skype into your classroom and answer your questions. There's a school in Richmond, Virginia, that they're getting, they were so engrossed in it, uh, in the book. Um, like three, this teaches three classes of hers, right? So I might be rolling up there like on my day off next week or this coming week to surprise them and then engage all these classes that are reading it and stuff, all these kids. And they're getting ready. This is the, this is the assignment the teacher gave them. They're going to take one of the ancestors mentioned on, you know, like you have the Vietnam War? Well, I did something like that for all the people who were killed by police from 1968, Henry Dumas, all the way up until, you know, as close to printing as possible. Um, the sister in um, Seattle, the, the, the one with the kids who was pregnant who got shot. Yeah, that wall right here. So they're going to take one of the ancestors and they're going to kind of research them and write about them. You know, so that's kind of cool. So teachers and librarians, or media specialists as they call them now, are doing a lot of work with the book. And the librarians say they can't keep the books. Because they, I think the cover really, you know, attracts them. The cover. Yeah. It's a good cover, sells it too. Another one? Okay, so um, the state of Maryland at least knows your book because it's on our Black Eyed Susan list. So, you know, Maryland kids are going to love it. I know that. So I have to thank both of you because I think... He's a winner. Yes, he is. I've known that for a while. <laughs> um, 
I think it's important for students to hear authors reading. Yeah. Because you get that sense in your hear in your ear and it sticks in your mind. I cannot read certain authors without hearing their voices. I'm reading. You know, when I go into the schools, I challenge the students to see if they can read my poetry better than me. Have you how many we, have? We, we all end up they all win. They all you, win. Yeah. But in that, I want to show them that you could really, like, perform it, you know? It's there. Speak the truth, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm a proud library media specialist, and I want to thank you for writing this because it's a great way to have discussion with our students about things that are very difficult to talk about. We're doing this as a book club um, selection later in the year. What are some other pairings that you would suggest that we use with our students, fiction and nonfiction? That's a good um, question. Well, just personally, on a personal level, um, Deborah, do you have that? You could pair it with this book right here, I think. This is a 13, 13 Ways, ways of, looking of Looking at a Black Boy. Go ahead. But also, outside of my own work, you could pair it with um, uh, Ghost Boys. Um, Ghost Boys. Parker, yeah. what's her name? Jewel Parker Rhodes. Jewel Parker Rhodes. And you could pair it with um, Nick Stone, who is just here, Dear Martin. You could pair it with the sister whose movie is coming out, uh, The Hate You Give. The Hate You Give. So there's a number of ways. And then you could also pair it with other, you know, film clips and artwork and, you know, poems and stuff like that. So there's so, met, so many different ways you can go with it. You could pair it with Hamlet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Tony, I'm going to... I'm going to wrap up our time so that you can sign and so that we can ask you more questions more intimately. I'm going to end this way. Um, as I do on every podcast episode, uh, I will see, and many of these folks will see, a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that we can bring to them from you? That when they look in the mirror, you know, love what you see, and you matter. Your voice matters. You know, nine times out of ten, a lot of our children grow up not being able to fully express themselves. Um, they may have like, you know, angry parent. They may be in a situation like, you know, I have a cousin who has angry parents and they're always sniping at one another and stuff like that. And it, it causes her, she's only nine, she, to, to clam up and stuff like that. And then she takes on those type of, um, that type of modeling behavior. So um, we gotta let children be themselves, express themselves, um, you know, um, through whatever creativity, whatever means they have to, but we can't dumb things down for them. And with regard to this book, as an adult, read it first to see if it's all right, because there's some heavy stuff in there, and there's the violence. Those things could be very triggering and, and hard for kids, so screen the book first if they're not of a certain age, you know, because some kids are, you know, they're raised in a certain way they, could, they can handle stuff like that. But I would say it's meant for 12 and up, you know. Um, but they, they need to believe in themselves, love themselves, treat every other person kindly, and dream big dreams and follow your dreams, you know. Thank you. Round of applause for Dr. Tony Medina. Thank you. This is Darshna Kiani, children's author and book blogger. Want to find out the latest South Asian books in children's literature? Check out 
www.flowering-minds.com forward slash South Asian Kidlet. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out with the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. Before we leave, I want to give a shout out to all of my patrons, those folks who are supporting the podcast and helping keep the lights on care of our Patreon page. Thank you, Jenny Sue, Amy, Kate, Darshana, Nicole, Jarrett, Mike, Link, Anitra, Lynn, Cynthia, Doug, Amanda, Ruth, Laura, Judy, Karina, Teresa, Elaine, and others who are coming with me on this journey. You are welcome to join us. Just visit patreon.com slash matthewcwinner and pick the support tier that's right for you. Teamwork makes the dream work, and each of you are helping to provide the tools necessary to make this podcast even greater. Thank you. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.